When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi, I'm Eddie Moretti. Welcome to the Vice Podcast. I'm sitting here with Ben Anderson. Hi, Ben. How you doing? Uh, let's talk about um, the documentary that you just produced um, for Vice. Well, it wasn't. Um, um, it was a continuation of a documentary that you had already done uh, in a much shorter form for the BBC. It's called um, "This Is What Winning Looks Like," uh, and it's you going to Afghanistan. And and so, tell us the, the origin of this documentary. I know you've been there for uh, many years. Well, I've been traveling to Helmand, where the war is fiercest for the last six years, and one town in particular called Sangin is where more British soldiers lost their lives than anywhere else. So it's famous in Britain. It's just been handed over pretty much to the Afghan army and police. So I wanted to go and see what that looked like. And I had a pretty good idea what it would look like because I've seen the Afghan army and police in action in the past. But it was even worse than I thought. I mean, so so you, you went in embedded or well, how did you get your access? Like how did you... I got through the Marines, but then I went out with the Afghan police and army from there. But you, you can't really go out with the Afghan army and police anymore. You have to stay with the US Marines all the time and they live completely separately. So I could only go out for a day at a time because of the insider attacks. They're, they're completely separate. And whenever the US Marines go onto the Afghan side of the yeah. base or go to an Afghan base, they cock their weapons just right. in case there's insider attack. Right, so go, go through this, like the laundry list of stuff that you found um, while mean, you were there. Without exaggeration, I found evidence that the police were kidnapping civilians for money or as part of a prisoner exchange, mm. uh, murdering people, uh, there were a number of drug addicts among them. A number of them didn't even exist. They were just names on a pay payroll for extra income. They were abducting and raping young children and M sometimes... Young boys. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes murdering them when they tried right. to escape. Um, so, you know, even with my very low expectations of the police in particular, I, I was amazed at how bad it was there and how nothing was really being done to tackle this either because it's now an Afghan-led operation there, mm -hmm. so it's an Afghan problem. Mm -hmm. um, and... The, the Marines, that the 500 infantry Marines have pulled back to the main base, which they almost never leave. They just spend their days lifting weights, uh, watching DVDs. Just two very small teams of 18 Marines go out every few days to advise the Afghans. Why isn't why isn't anyone else reporting on this, or you know why? I mean, are they? Are they? I mean, there's a few writers. There's a couple of writers in, in England primarily, or there's a couple of American writers I can think of. Uh, Matt okay. Aikens, Luke Mogelson, who are, are brilliant, um, but but. Very few, apart from that, and, and mainstream media and TV in what, particular. Why? Why? I mean, Afghanistan. If, I mean, if it, it's like as bad as you say it is over there, why wouldn't um, you know evidence or reporting on on the situation leak out more I mean, often? It, it feels very important to me, so I think it should be front page news regularly. Um, but why do you but, think it isn't? Um, I mean, a lot of the reporters I spoke to after I did this film said, "Oh yeah, we we knew about all this stuff." 
And I thought, well, why haven't you reported it then? Um, and, and maybe they're worried that, you know, if they report it, then they won't get access to the military again. And, and certainly it's, it's harmed my chance of getting access to the British military because they're very scared that I'll reveal the same thing in so you, areas where they are. So you've been um, in, in country with um, the British forces before. Uh, yeah. what, what year was that in? 2007. And what was that? Uh, what did you report on then? Uh, same thing. I mean, the fighting was just much worse than we were being told. The Afghans were nowhere near ready. Uh, they were fighting for, for land and having to give it up that night because they didn't have the manpower. Right. Um, and that's what first got me addicted. And after that, I started going to the U.S. Marines. And, and you know, I, I've got to say, the U.S. Marines, they, they, they really respect freedom of the press and, and, you know, your right to go out there and report on it w without restrictions. And, mm. and I often found that because especially TV reporters, photographers are great, newspaper reporters tend to be great, TV reporters tend to go for a day or two and right. then leave. So if you're willing to go there, take the same risks as the Marines, spend you know weeks on end with them, sleeping where they sleep, eating what they eat, um, facing the same dangers they, they, they face, they, they really respect that and they're just relieved that someone's finally turned up to show how rough it is for them. So who gave you permission then to, um, um, in, in, to, to go and stay with the Marines? The, the, Who, the, the Marines themselves. Right, so yeah. you petitioned them yeah. independently that yeah. I want to go and do this documentary. Yeah. Did you run into, or have you in your years in Afghanistan, run into other documentary filmmakers, independent ones? Yeah, with the Marines, yeah, there's been a few. Yeah. Um, and they all say the same thing. The U.S. Marines are, are great to go out with right. um, and will let you film everything. A lot of other people, uh, U.S. Army, Navy, British forces, there, there's heavy restrictions. It's very difficult to get access to the real stuff that you know is going on. Right, so... Um, a portion of this video ended up on the BBC a few months ago. When yeah. was that? Uh, early March. Early March. And it was a, a shorter program, but uh, what was the reaction to it in in, in your country, in, in the UK, but also, you know, the Marines that you did spend time with, did they see that piece over here? Yeah, the, the, the officials were, were very unhappy with it and said, you betrayed the trust of the Marines you were with. Oh, shit. The officials. The Americans. Yeah, yeah. But the Marines themselves. The people that gave you the permission, let's yeah. say, to go in. Yeah. So they were pissed off. Yeah. The Marines themselves were happy that someone was just, A, listening to them and B, well, B showing what they were dealing with. So that, that kind of comes partly from how sympathetic they come off in the documentary, um, at least the version the long version that you've um, um, created for us, um, there are, there's at least one Marine in there who's like incredibly um, persistent and, and his name is- Major Bill Stuber. Ma Major yeah. Bill Stuber. And you know, tell us what it was like finding him and how candid he was and what were the kind of conversations like off camera? I mean, I think he was very honest anyway, but they were sort of unlucky to get me because I turned up and within the first day or two said, I've been to this place three or four times before. I've seen this, this and this happening. So they, they couldn't really bullshit me even if they wanted to. Right. But I don't think Major Stuber wanted to bullshit me. I mean, he's one of those people who just, who just couldn't lie. Right. And also, he was, all the stuff he was seeing, you know, child abuse, murder, kidnapping, he was reporting up every day. Right. But nothing was being done. Right. So, so I think he was relieved just that someone was listening to him. He liked you because he talked a lot on camera. Yeah. Do you yeah. think he got in trouble for talking? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, the, the Marines seem to you know, be allowed to have their own opinion more right. than elsewhere in the military. I mean, 
I think I think he's going to retire. I think this was yeah, really you, bad for him. So, uh, you know, if, if he was a, a really career-minded Marine, maybe this would have done him a lot of damage. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly you look at the statements the generals are making, and they're very much on message. Right. They're so, saying all the right things. Yes, explain that a little bit so people understand, like, um, someone like Stuber, what his kind of tour of duty in Afghanistan um, looks like and how long he's in there. And then, you know, there's this great sequence in your documentary where, um, you know, American officials come to get briefed and some British come to get briefed and the briefing is like completely whitewashed um, and Stuber is not allowed to speak at all yeah. and not even asked. So maybe those two things, What what is um, typical for an American soldier? What What's their experience like over the last, let's just say the last two or three years and not go back to the beginning of the war? Yeah. The U.S. Marines do more intense tours than U.S. soldiers, U.S. Army. So they oh, tend wow. to do six-month tours, okay. whereas the U.S. Army tend to do 12-month tours. Okay. But in that six months, a month is taken from the handover, where you're in the main base, you're talking to the, the guy you're taking over from. So you've actually got five months in a location to try and sort things out. And, and in the book, I say, imagine taking an Indian who doesn't speak English and dropping him in the middle of Chicago and saying, by the way, your buddy killed some civilians by mistake before you got here. And within five months, you have to introduce an entirely new system of governance and work out who to trust and who not to trust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you don't speak the language. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how's they uh, get on? I mean, they, they've got no chance, no right. chance whatsoever. And these are guys who are trained to fight. Right. They're not trained to be engineers, social workers, judges, policemen. Right. You know, so it's, it, it's an impossible task. Right. And, uh, um, you know, that scene um, where they come to get briefed, um, what you know, you described, I think maybe in conversations with me elsewhere, um, sort of like the lack of incentive that anyone has really to say anything. Um, you know that. You know, can you can you can you explain? You know the, you know the 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 level of kind of diligence in those briefings by the officials that walk in. Are they kind of there to be sort of? nudge, nudge, wink, wink, everything's okay, I'll go back to the Congress and say everything's good? Or they genuinely believe that it's kind of okay and we can leave the country in 2014? I always used to think that when you hear these incredibly upbeat statements, that they're just saying what they have to say, but they actually know what's really going on. Having seen that briefing, now I'm not so sure, because the briefing was nothing but good news. I mean, you know, three boys were shot dead. Three boys who had been abducted and were being raped by police commanders had been shot dead wasn't mentioned wasn't mentioned at all so you know I I think it was a a, a PR op it was a photo op and they wanted to go to Sangin the most dangerous town in Afghanistan and say there must be progress if the ambassadors can visit the once their exact words were the once uh, insurgent stronghold of of Sangin as if we've you know somehow pushed the insurgents out which we haven't Um, and and that alone was enough to say there has been progress so they, they, they didn't want to hear Mm-hmm. about all the bad things that were going on or, or maybe is, it wasn't even them it was the you know someone below them didn't want to tell them about all the bad things that had been going on, which is probably the more likely so from your to, point of view then and you know um, given your contact with different American troops and forces is this um, uh, is this like the example of a country that's basically has in fact written off this war and is really kind of done with it Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, you have to remember some of the statements that were made at the beginning of this war, you know, about liberating uh, women, sending little girls to school, the Taliban, you know, 
have finished. I mean, we're not, now we would gladly do a peace deal with the Taliban. Well, they would be given seats in, in government. You know, these, these are people who we were told, you know, all about how they throw acid in girls' faces, right. ban music, and so you know, We would gladly now do a peace deal with them. I mean, if, that's, you know, if, if, if George Bush would have said in 2001, after 11 or 12 years of fighting, perhaps 22, 23,000 lives lost, maybe 80, 90,000 people have, have lost, you know, legs Lames, and arms, yeah. $600 billion spent. The, the best we can hope for is a peace deal with the Taliban. I mean, people would have thought he was insane, but that's that's the situation that's where we are we're in now. now. Yeah, yeah. And you know, everyone says the Afghan army have improved; they might be ready to take on the Taliban on their own. The Afghan army have improved, but but half of the security forces are the police. Yeah. So describe that to people because I don't think they understand. You know, what is the the division and what is the 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 readiness of each of those? There's forces. roughly two hundred thousand Afghan army, right. uh, some of whom are almost capable of operating on their own. It depends who you believe. If you listen to the Pentagon, one battalion out of, I think it's 26, can operate independently. If you listen to other people, it's five or six. And what was your experience with the um, Afghan soldiers that you saw? I mean, they were trying to do a good job. You know, they were were good guys, unlike the police. They weren't predatory like the police were. But as soon as they saw four suspected Taliban, who the Marines said to them were just men without weapons, but in the wrong area at the wrong time, they opened up with everything they had, uh, you know, grenades, rockets, hundreds of bullets, and, and just spraying from the hip in all directions. Not disciplined, um, and no. And if you know, if if if, if that's and that, that was one of the one of the best units I've ever seen, and, and the U.S. Marines there had ever seen. Right. Um, so so, so two hundred thousand soldiers, yeah. and then one hundred fifty thousand police. And on the record, the people who train the police have said to me, most of the crime in southern Afghanistan is committed by the police. Right. I mean, they're hated and feared by the local population, and, and you know, for good reason. Mm. And what, how does that um, map to the rest of the country? What about in the rest of the country? The police? I mean, yeah, the police. I, I, I took part in a, in a debate in London recently where someone stood up and said, oh, you've just gone to Sangin, it's the worst town in Afghanistan, other places have, you know, there's been loads of progress elsewhere, and then there has been progress in some other places. But then a, a, a Dutch soldier in the back stood up and said, well, I've been in the northeast for the last six years doing intelligence supposedly the safe bit of Afghanistan, and the police are no different whatsoever there. Really? Yeah. So yeah. you were uh, vindicated in the room by yeah, someone yeah, who was yeah. in the north. Yeah. So you've been um, going to Afghanistan for six years, right? Yeah. So describe to us, you know, where you think we're at, or where the country is at, uh, you know, as we prepare to leave. Like, what's going to happen next? Well, pe- people keep on saying, people keep, to, they keep on talking about end game, you know, and, it, and it, for us, the war is over. Right. All, all, almost all of our troops are pulled back to the main bases, for us. For the Afghans, it's entering possibly the worst stage so far. Um, everyone says, you know, maybe there's going to be a civil war when we leave. There's already a civil war. There's 310 Afghan police and soldiers getting killed every month. Far, 310. Far, yeah, far worse losses than, than Britain and America ever suffered there. And, and, and civilian casualties keep rising on top of that as well. Um, and this is why we're still there and can still bail the Afghans out with all the surveillance and air support that we've got. That's going to be good. So, so describe what's... The, so by your account, the Afghan police forces are kind of hopelessly corrupt or inept or both. Yeah, both. Um, so who's attacking them? Who are they fighting? Like, what's the dynamic there? Is it just, you know, really kind of um, uh, hardened Taliban that are attacking them or is... Is the whole country kind of pitching in to fight these yeah, people? I mean, Other warlords, like who's? Yeah, this who's, is the problem. What's the, Everyone, what's, what is the? If it is kind of proto civil war, what describe it? Well, 
The problem is everyone, myself included, is kind of lazy in saying every member of the opposition is Taliban. Right. And that, that probably describes, I don't know, 40 different groups. In, in the South, you certainly get the impression that a lot of the people are just... To Americans, groups. it's just Taliban, yeah. right? If you're not in an Afghan uniform, you're just... And, and, and you're not a with, farmer, you're Taliban. Yeah, but most of the people so, we're <laughs> fighting are, are farmers. They're just farmers who want us and the corrupt government out of their backyards. Right. Um, you know, if they, they, are they being directed by Mullah Omar in Pakistan? I, I don't think so. So how... how yeah, so what is... What does um, Taliban leadership look like in Afghanistan right now? Who's the leader, and where, you know, are there directors and like? Well, that's what I'm saying. There are, there are three or four different groups based in Pakistan. They don't seem right. to be directing the guys that we're fighting against in southern Afghanistan. So who um, we even um, um, potentially? It's just uh, a Pashtun talk, nationalist talk. insurgency, and, and right. It, okay. It, depending Expl- on who, you know how you do a deal with everyone at the same time, you know. So explain explain that. What's the Pashtun nationalist insurgency? When we when we first finished bombing Afghanistan and, and the Taliban were you know bombed out of power, we were in quite a rush to get to Iraq, so we handed power to basically the Northern Alliance, the historical enemies of the Taliban, and to this day and they're Pashtun. No, 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 no. no they're they're, they're Hazaras, um, you know, Tajiks, all the northern ethnic All the groups. northern. Taliban, are, not not all Pashtuns are Taliban, but most Taliban are, are Pashtuns. Right. Um, so, you know, Karzai is. He's Pashtun. Yeah, that, that's why he was chosen, because uniquely he's a Pashtun who can also deal with everybody else. He's a else. Pashtun who's not Taliban, yeah. one of the few. I mean, the, the problem is that officially the army has got something like 40% Pashtuns in it, but not southern Pashtuns. Right. So it's, it's a conflict between the northern groups and the southern Pashtuns. Okay. And it's just a southern resistance against a corrupt... I mean, it, I, I film the Afghan army, who, but compared to the police, are, are the good guys. Yeah. Um, driving into a town with pictures of Masood and Dostum on their windshields. Right. The, the local people won't see that as their national army coming to save and protect them. They'll see it as their historical enemies coming for vengeance. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we could have created a national army and a national police force back in 2001, 2002, but, but showed no interest. I mean, George Bush said, I, I, I'm not, I don't do nation, nation building. Nation building. Yeah. So where does Karzai fit into all of this? Well, he's like, from a very... What, you know, because, you know, the, the, the reports over the last few years, at least over here, have been that he's um, probably stoned a lot and smoking pot, um, but definitely he's corrupt. And, you know, just a few days ago, there was a report in the Times about him taking CIA money. Um, you know, I mean, bag, bags ba- of CIA, ba- bags of Iranian money. Yeah. bags of money. Which he says goes so, to pay for rehabilitation and pay off warlords and, and you know. Yeah pay for um, scholarships for yeah. some of his men, which, so, which may well be what, true. What, did, what does the country think of Karzai? Um, I mean, he doesn't seem to be as unpopular as, as, as you'd, you'd think. Um, his family is spectacularly corrupt. Right. Um, you know, his, his, his brothers, I mean, one, one brother had the exclusive Toyota contract, contract for importing Toyota. Wally Karzai in, in Kandahar mm-hmm. was fam- famously, famously corrupt. Um, but, you know, the headlines he's getting recently where he's making statements about how you know, he might join the Taliban or the Americans are in league with the Taliban. And I think to be a successful leader in Afghanistan with the ethnic divisions that exist, you have to look like, you have to not look like you're a foreign puppet. puppet. So so I think all of those statements are for his domestic audiences. And I Mm. think the American senior officials who deal with him realize that, which is why the statements he's making aren't having the bad effect you might think they would have. But you've been there for a long time. Is, you know... Is, do you think Karzai has been, to the extent that he can, effectively rebuilding that country, or 
is there I mean, another... How, how can Karzai do it? I mean, at, at, at the minute, they're supposed to be paying for half of, of you know, the, their, their country's national budget, um, and they, they can't do it. That's not including the military, by the way. We're still paying the, the police and army salaries and equipment. Mm -hmm. so, so half of the expenditure, apart from the military, they, they, they can't do it. Um, so, but, you know, like, I'm, I, I presume that, well, I don't know, maybe you tell me like I'm a stupid idiot, but I presume part of the job of, of him rebuilding the country is not just, you know, resources and training, but it's him projecting himself as the right leader and, you know, loved and accepted by all. And, um, you know, um, the kind of person that can give a fledgling army and a police force like some great role model and example to, yeah. to follow like you know I mean, does he does he even crisscross the country and go and speak to people and like does he just sit in Kabul is he like completely protected is he like you know yeah I mean the old the old joke that all the foreign reporters certainly make is that he's the mayor of Kabul and, right. and so nothing else I've certainly never seen him in Kandahar or Helmand right. but, and, and in Kandahar and Helmand they don't necessarily talk about Karzai they just talk about the government mm. and the government being spectacularly corrupt mm -hmm. um, and everything you do from being a young girl who goes to school to an officer who wants to graduate from training you know, need, needs a bribe, right. um, and quite a large bribe a lot of the time. So it's more the government rather than Karzai who's criticised right. for that. So, and Karzai reacted in the press to the original short form uh, of this documentary that was on BBC. Karzai's office said Karzai's it, yeah, office. it was all lies, no one in the police force is involved in drug taking or kidnapping, um, and then I think someone whispered in his ear that actually it had all been filmed. So a team was sent to Sangin to investigate. But as far as I know, nothing's been done. And, and one of the, the deputy police commanders who says that awful line about, you know, if my men don't have sex with these boys, who will they have sex with their, their own grandmothers? As, right. if, as if not having chai boys would be a problem. Um, uh, he, we, we thought he'd been retired, um, you know, which was their way of firing him. He'd actually been promoted and was working for the provincial police right. chief after I left. So let, let's talk about this, um, you know, Previous to this trip, had you encountered this phenomenon of, you know, grown men keeping 14-year-old boys as sex slaves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When, when, Every trip I've, yeah. I've heard stories about it. I've never seen it as blatantly as this. I've certainly never heard about boys being murdered for trying to escape. And they call them chai boys because yeah. why? Because they serve tea on the, on the bases. They're, they're sort of servants and, and sex slaves at the same time. And I, you know, I, I honestly don't understand it in a country as religiously conservative as Afghanistan how that's it's not accepted, but it's it's common. But and yeah, but 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 it's it's uh, it, it's interesting because we were talking about this. There are, um, you know, no girls around um, in public, so you're not you know socializing with women. Yeah. And so it's essentially a, a country of it's like a monastic existence and if you're a policeman from elsewhere in the country and you might be sent to Helmand for two years without much leave and so a few people have said to me things like you can't obviously take your wife there so you want some kind of companion you know, it's almost like ancient Rome right. with the bearded men and the unbearded but honestly I, I wish I understood it more you'd have thought it would be the most disgusting thing to even think of doing and yet it's done fairly openly by a large number of police commanders in the south but some of these things like the phenomenon of chai boys um you know this is endemic to afghan culture right it's not a result of our war there um, no, no, no. Right. Oh, yeah, there was a poem by a famous um, Afghan king, where, an Afghan poet, sorry, where he says, 
he, he talks about the women of Kandahar being the most beautiful women in the world. But then on the other side of the river, he sees a boy with buttocks like peaches, and he ends the poem by saying, but alas, I could not swim. Um, so yeah, it's been going on Otherwise a while. Otherwise he would have got the Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's and, been going on for a while. Then. And you know, all, you know, the bribery, the corruption, the tribalism, like these are problems that the country has been dealing with for a long time. Yeah, not, not, I mean, it doesn't, you know, a lot of people now are kind of saying, we tried our best, but the Afghans want it to be this way. And the Afghans want to fight each other. So it's, it's their fault. That, that's definitely not true. After 2001, we chose to put those people back in power. You know, the right. worst monsters from Afghanistan's recent, recent history. That, that didn't have to be the way it went at all. And, and there certainly was a sense straight after the bombing of the Taliban and the Taliban left power that, that everyone, within reason, was willing to play their part to try and rebuild their country. And what was the, what, what was the fatal error then? Well, because we, in the rush to get to Iraq, we handed power to whoever happened to have enough men to provide some kind of security, no matter what kind of crimes they'd committed in the past, no matter how much blood they had on their hands. Right. And I think at that moment, we persuaded a lot of Afghans, yeah, that, that's all you're going to do for us. Mm. If you're going to bring Dostum, for example, back into power, one of the worst warlords from Afghanistan's history, then, then, then we'll fight you. Mm. Um, it didn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. And what do you think, um, you know, how precipitous will this be? Like, um, the U.S. leaves in, you know, next year, um, but do they pull back um, completely? Or, you know, what, 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 this time, what do you think the transition's going to look like? Well, there's always going to be, they're talking about 10, 12,000 troops will remain in country. That means roughly two, 3,000 who can actually go out and do things because the others will be in support of those mm. troops. And there'll be, a, there'll be a lot of special forces there mm. targeting suspected Al-Qaeda and, and being close to Pakistan. So in terms of it being a counter-terror campaign, that's going to carry on for a very long time. In terms of it being counter-insurgency and nation-building, that's over. We, right. we, we've, we've absolutely stopped even talking about doing that anymore. Right. And just what do you, you know, what's your prediction on... Uh on on the way that you know the the coalition of Afghans that are you know fighting or resisting these particular police um, um, forces, what do you think that dynamic is like? In the documentary, you talked about like how it's the you know supply um, um, lines have steadily been eroded, and so that a lot of these police. Um, bases don't have gasoline and, and are poorly equipped, don't even know how to maintain the generators that they have yeah. there or, or the other equipment. You know, like how quickly does this sort of shitty network that we help set up of police bases, how quickly does that kind of dissolve and melt away? I mean, I mean, Afghans I know from that area who know far better than me think they'll vanish straight away. Straight away. And they'll either join the Taliban or just disappear back to wherever they came from. Um, and, the, and the big weakness for them is, is logistics. Um, right. Logistically, they're just uh, totally unsustainable. Right. Um, yeah. in, in, in every way. Right. Um, you, you talked uh, to some people, um, I think it was Stuber again, who was talking about the, the, the gas theft in the country. Yeah, the, the, the police in in southern Helmand, uh, sorry, the police in Helmand were stealing fuel from Lashkar, the provincial capital, right. and it was thought to be roughly a million dollars worth of fuel. So the spigot was just turned off. Mm. And of course, when 20 officers wanted to go to the provincial capital for training, the Marines had to lend them some of their fuel mm. to bail them out. And that, that's going to that's going to stop happening very soon. I mean, yeah, if the if there is no gas now. Yeah. It, it's it's not going to get any better yeah. once the I mean, Americans yeah. leave. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm really pessimistic, and I, I don't see the police lasting 
you know, weeks after we actually leave. One, one thing that's really hard for um, me, maybe other people in this country, is to kind of wrap our brains around the Afghan economy. Like, what is, what is the state of the Afghan economy? And, of course, where does drug money fit into this? And what are these people growing? It doesn't look like incredibly versatile, you know, sort of farmland. I mean, in, in a lot, you know, I've only really traveled extensively in the South. Mm-hmm. So all I can talk about is the South. And, and Helmand and Kandahar, Helmand in particular, are, yeah. you know, the, 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 the produce more drugs than any other province Bobby. in Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah, Hel- Helmand in particular. Helmand. Um, and every single house you go into in, in Helmand, there's a, there's a stack of harvested opium poppies above your head. Um, and it's sort of funny to see British or, or, or American troops walking in and not even mentioning it. You know, don't, don't, right. don't, don't even make a, a nod to it. It's just, it's just so, so, so normal. Right. Um, so the economy in the South is heavily dependent on opium. And the, the it's opium the only thing they're really growing. It's right. the only thing you can. I mean, you can grow other things, but, it, but it's harder. The price isn't as good. And, you know, the, the, the Taliban have, have often made loans to farmers based on next year's crop. So they've established exactly the kind of long-term relationship that we've always tried to be tried tried to establish. Um, in a, in a con- yeah, that's not good, right? <laughs> um, in a country, you know, it's not that big. Um, can they identify with detail who the drug lords are? Do they know these people? Is it like common knowledge, basically, that the government Kabul? Kind of knows yeah. everyone who's responsible yeah. for. for well, it, it is half half the government. I mean, half half the cabinet. Uh, you know, everyone says are, are, are involved. I mean, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you just you just go into any provincial capital and you see they call it narcotecture or narco palaces. Right. These huge villas, you know, with with marble and, and mirrors that just you know, well, you can imagine how much they stand mm-hmm. out. And ev- ev- everyone knows it's 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 not a not a secret. And the Americans know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was that another like? decision that was just made we can't affect the drug trade in this country so don't even bother or? I mean eradication efforts have gone on elsewhere I haven't seen it, any initially there were eradication yeah. efforts right? I know they were, people calling for the whole burning, country they were burning yeah. and they were spraying things and um, but in the south I, I haven't seen any serious effort and, and you, when you did come across teams that were doing it you always heard stories about you know take out those two little fields there but don't touch those big fields over there right. because they belong to somebody we know um, but the, the you know, opium production's gone up every year since we've been there. I think there was one year when it went down because there was a mystery bug, which really was a mystery bug. It wasn't oh, like a, CIA, like, a, but, you know. like a, a pest. Yeah, yeah. But apart from that, that it's got, the, the, the opium production's gone up every, every year um, yeah. that, we, that we've been there. Why do you think that the drug um, lords are tolerated? Oh, because if, if we really tackled, if, if we really took away the only source of income for... for you know, hundreds of thousands of poor Afghan families, I think you'd turn an insurgency into an insurrection. And at the minute, a lot of people are kind of sitting on the fence because if they're nice to the US Marines during the day, they might get a new well built for them or something, and then they're nice to the Taliban at night because the Taliban aren't going anywhere and they're probably afraid of them. So they're kind of sitting on the fence. If we took away their main source of income, and for a lot of people their only source of income, then, you know, we'd really be in trouble there. So, yeah, I mean, like... You know, the, the, you've been going for six years. Um, these people, um, adult male Afghanis, have been um, experiencing some kind of form of fighting or um, kind of virtual occupation um, for their whole lives. You know, what's your experience? How, I mean, how how many regular non-Taliban farmer type Afghanis did you actually get to 
talk to in the course of your trips over there and what are they like what are these people like these dudes I mean yeah a, a dozens a lot more than is thought possible when you're on, on an embed and, and they all had pretty much the same sentiment which was like I don't really care um, who's in power uh, you know, I just want security and justice. Just, just leave me alone to farm my bit of land, and, and I won't bother anybody. Mm. And I won't expect anything from every, anybody either. You know, the idea that they expect central government to provide them with all these services is 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 completely foreign to them. You know, I made a point when when I went into a town that had been under Taliban control. I'd mm. always make a point of interviewing as many locals as possible and saying, "Look, what was it like?" You know, we hear so many stories about life under the Taliban, and they'd say, "You know, it wasn't it wasn't so bad. There was no theft. There was no robbery. There were no checkpoints where they took right. money from us." You know, this, this, the problem is we've demonized the Taliban so much. Well, we've misconstrued them because we have sort of put the put the term, and, um, we've, we've made it so broad, we've broadened it out that it's kind of meaningless. But at the same time we've done that, we've sort of glorified our allies. And on the issue of women's rights, for example, the Taliban and Northern Alliance, they've got no ide ideological difference in terms of women's rights, none whatsoever. Right. Um, you know, so so it's it's a it's, I think it's one of the big mistakes of this war has been to demonise your right. enemy and, and, and glorify your allies. Where actually, a lot of areas there's there's very little difference, if if any. Um, you know, Sharia and uh, Islam. You know how how powerful is it really with the the general Afghani po population? Because that's like one barometer that's going to tell us how successful the new rise of the Taliban will be. Like um, how pious is this country? I mean, very. On one side, by the way, they're bribing, kidnapping people and, and having sex with young boys, but how yeah. religious is the country? I mean, it seems to be a mix of um, religious and cultural influences, but, but very, very um, conservative, um, you know, to the point where the ideas that we thought we could introduce, you know, we assumed everybody wanted the things we were looking to introduce back at the beginning. Um, and I don't think a lot of the population did want them introduced. I mean, don't forget that Karzai himself signed in a law that said rape within marriage is legal, uh, women and men can't mix at school right. or work, right. women can't leave the house without their husband's permission. Right. You know, and, and, and like I said before, the idea that the Taliban and our allies in Afghanistan, you know, somehow disagree on women's rights, for example, is, is, is a fallacy. Well, what, yeah, um, like paint a picture to us a little bit about what information um, or media looks like in Afghanistan? I mean, are they watching a particular news program at night, or I mean, are they watching anything? Or? Yeah, very, very, I mean, you know, again, all, all I really know is, is Helmand and, and, and the more rural areas of Kandahar, and I've, I read a few American commentators say, oh, that's fantastic, there are TVs here and cell phones, and there are cell phones, I, I haven't seen TVs anywhere where, I, where I've been. Yeah, um, what's it like being there? Like, does it feel like going back in time, or? Yeah. Um, Do you yeah, lose contact, connection with the outside world? Yeah, no contact with the outside world for, for the five or six weeks I'm there. I mean, when, when you're in the villages outside of the, of the, the main towns in Helmand province, it's, it's pretty much mud huts with, with high walls around them, um, no access to running water, uh, electricity. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, very little communications, internet, anything like that. Mm. Um, I mean, the people have, have nothing, um, you know, really nothing. Um, li live, you know, large families will live in a two, three bedroom house, which is literally two or three rooms. And how they survive some of the cold nights, I don't know. Because right. I'm there in my Gore-Tex and, you know, my thermal underwear and sleeping bag and all that, and I'm freezing. Mm. So how, how they survive the cold nights, I don't know. You know, what have you seen in, in, in terms of, you know, just like Afghan social life, like inter-village or, you know, um, in, in these rural areas? It sounds 
pretty depressing and bleak. The 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 the, the guys and the the farmers in your video are. I mean, they they're like they have this amazing you know look to them, but it's you know it's character based on you know having been beaten down for so many years and. I mean, it does sound very bleak and depressing, but but most of the time when you enter someone's home or village, they're unbelievably welcoming and generous. I mean, they've literally got almost nothing and they're giving you, you know, one of their last pieces of bread and, and rushing someone out to get tea for you, a little bowl of, a little bowl of sweets. Right. Um, some, some of the nicest, friendliest, most, most, you know, welcoming people I've ever met anywhere, which is often true. It seems like the worse the country's reputation is, the nicer the, the, people. the people tend to be, yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, it, you know, everyone seems to know someone that's stepped on an IED or, or, or been yeah. killed by, by whoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they, they do have nothing, but they, they, they go to the bazaar every day. They seem to... What's you know, the bazaar like? It's in Sangin, the, the bazaar has supposedly been transformed from you know how it was in 2007, 2006 when we first went in, and there's the tarmac road there now. But the bazaar was thriving before we went in because that was the main opium bazaar. I mean, almost for Helmand, most of the opium was traded there, so it was thriving before so we went in. So what did just like have? How did they trade at the bazaar? Just like tons of pop, poppy, like uh, a, a three um, three walls corrugated metal shutter on the front, and then sell whatever it used to be opium. Now it's okay. car parts food, quite a lot of imported food, blankets and things from, from Pakistan, but, you know, it didn't look transformed at all when I went there. I mean, I was looking forward to seeing it because I'd heard, heard all these statements about how much it had been transformed. And apart from the, these two stretches of tarmac through the main bazaar, um, I didn't notice any difference at all. And there are still loads of buildings that have had bombs dropped in them that haven't been rebuilt. And actually, I interviewed a Muller on a previous trip, and he said to the Marine, he said, you've killed 5,000 people here. And I, I've, I've got no idea if that's true or not, 5,000 people. But, and you've built a, a three-kilometer tarmac road. You know, which do you think is better for us? No road and, and no 5,000 people killed, or the road and 5,000 people killed. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think he speaks for a lot of people. I mean, the, on, on the recent trip, I, I spent some time with the local council, and the British were very proud of the local council. You know, 2,000 people from Sangin had voted for these guys, um, and they didn't have a single good word to say about any of us. Right. Uh, they said you've created a few kings and businessmen, but the poor people haven't received a penny. Um, there is no security. We can't stand up on our own after you leave. We have nothing. Showed me a picture of four guys who had been killed, um, and no one was supporting their families. Um, and this was this was a three four hour long meeting, and not a single good word to say. Not 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 a good omen. Um, what about drone warfare? Is that um, a big problem in, in these villages? Has it no, radicalized? Um, no, there aren't there aren't many drone strikes at all in, in okay. Helmand. I mean, you see them. They're, 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 in Helmand and, and Kandahar, they're mostly used for surveillance. Yeah, so, so describe how the Americans or NATO is operating then, um, currently, how they're collecting information. Well, there's the, the, the cameras they've got. There's cameras everywhere. I mean, how do these, they do that? There are weather, like hydrogen balloons, that float all over Helmand and, and Kandahar constantly. And they've got thermal cameras, night vision cameras that can film everything on the ground. So you, you can track a guy for a week using these cameras. There are huge masts with cameras, there are drones with cameras. So it's mostly done through surveillance. The, the, the bulk of the fighting force, the infantry, have pulled back and, and, and never go out. Mm. Um, you know, it, it really is Afghan-led now. And that was always the claim in the past, was that it was Afghan-led, and it, 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 it was never Afghan-led. We, you know, Americans or Brits would drag along a few Afghans reluctantly. Now the Afghans really are on their own. And the US or British infantry are just there in case things go catastrophically wrong over the next you know, 12 months. Mm. Apart from that, 
the war's over for them. And do you foresee, um, you know, the insurgents, whether they're official Taliban or not, do you see them biding their time over the next 12 months, waiting for everyone to leave, or are they operating, you know, I mean, again, everyone keeps on saying that, you know, the Taliban's momentum has been reversed in in Helmand, and, and, I mean, it's hanging every night. You'd hear fights going on all around you, IEDs going off all around you. Um, you know, last last week was the deadliest day for for NATO forces of the year so far. You know, they're they're still as active as they've ever been. Maybe more active than they've ever been. It's just that now they're just killing Afghans, right. not British or Americans. So we're not hearing about it. Right, right. Um, so it seems know, like right. According to the, the, there's one group who, who give advice to all of the NGOs worldwide mm. about about safety. Mm. According to them, um, I think it's 47 percent. Uh, there's an increase in Taliban attacks by 47 percent. So right. far this year. So it's getting worse. It's not being really yeah. reported because it's Afghans. Yeah. Karzai has no real response to it in the country. And uh, no one has a TV, so they're not really sharing this yeah, information. Yeah. There, there are far more casualties now than there have been during the worst years for British and American forces. It's just that they're all Afghans, so, so we're not hearing about it. So besides us, who else is in Afghanistan or rumored to be and... You know, what do you know about any other government? Well, this is this is the, the big problem in Afghanistan. Is you, you look at where it is, you know, the crossroads. I mean, it's Pakistan, of course, is heavily involved. India is is heavily involved, supporting the Northern Alliance, which makes Pakistan more paranoid that India is is surrounding it. Iran, obviously, is involved. The, the, the stands in the north of the country. China has invested heavily in Afghanistan. A lot of people are saying, you know, that's the next major major chapter is China's involvement. Describe that. I don't, to be honest, I don't know much about it. I just know that people think there are billions of dollars worth of mineral wealth in Afghanistan and that the Chinese are making moves to start trying to extract it. And, you know, like the Chinese in Africa, that might be a purely commercial venture without any military intervention. People think there are billions of dollars worth of, of minerals just under the ground in, in, in various parts of Afghanistan. And that, that because of that, like with Africa, the Chinese are going to be heavily involved. But um, we're, we're like, um, But not supporting the Taliban... No, no. So, which begs the question, in like a country of such, you know, limited resources, how do these Taliban um, survive? How are they funded? Where do they get their IEDs from or their weaponry or even their ammunition? Like, where is it coming from? We, you know, we're watching Israel bomb Syria because it's very clear that... You know, Syria is 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 a transit route for um, arming Hezbollah. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Well, pa- Pakistan has got an interest in, in in maintaining influence with with the Taliban. Uh, so the Taliban are making money from opium, um, and someone like China. I mean, you know, we, we do it now. If, if we're trying to secure convoys going in and out of Afghanistan, we'll pay warlords right. and militias along the way. Some of whom are undoubtedly Taliban. Right. Um, so if you're willing to pay off whoever it is to get from A to B. Um, then, then that person can can make a lot of money, and we're already paying the Taliban to do that. So I'm sure China, or whoever, will be paying them a lot of money to do the same thing mm. before too long. So the, the the title of this piece is um, "This is what winning looks like." That's a quote, right? Yeah, that, that's the quote from General Allen on his on his last day as commander of NATO forces in Afghanistan. And he was basically trying to describe a situation. He said, the the future, our legacy is Afghan forces pushing back the Taliban, spreading the influence of the Afghan government. Uh, This is winning. This is what victory looks like. And we shouldn't shrink from using those words. Mm. Um, And 
I think that's almost the exact opposite of what our legacy will be in Afghanistan. Do you think he'll go back soon? He'll go back. Will you go back? Oh, will I go back, sorry. Um, yeah, yeah, I really want to go back. I mean, it, 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 my great fear is that, that, you know, what happens next won't be covered at all because even with British and American troops still there and still dying, the public at home seem not to care anymore. When, when all the British and American troops are actually home, or most of them, there are going to be some staying, um, you know, it, it, this could not appear anywhere in the newspapers at all. Would you go back knowing what you know now about the state of the Afghan military and the police force, would you go back under their protection? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of the, the gunfights I witnessed between the police and the army and the Taliban um, sounded awful, and there were hundreds of bullets and rockets and grenades, but very few, if any, casualties. Right. So I think it, unless I was unlucky enough to be on a small patrol base that came under a major attack by the Taliban, and that, yeah. ha that, that has happened where everybody on the base has been killed, um, I think you could cover it and, and yeah, be be safer than you'd think. I mean, not safe, but you know, not not it wouldn't it wouldn't be suicidal. Right. And you would go in in embedded with the police forces. Yeah, I mean, a few people have said to me, don't, don't do that with the police force because my film was shown in Afghanistan and they even went to the police commander and said, a BBC journalist filmed you talking about young boys getting abused. He denied it was him and, and someone had it on his laptop and showed him and even when he saw you know, his own picture, he, he said, said, that's not me. <laughs> um, so they've said, maybe don't do some stuff with the police because you might get shot. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I was in contact today with, with a, a, a commander of the Afghan army that I know very well. And I said, look, next time there's a big operation, I'd love to come. And when you go to Afghanistan, how do you communicate? Like, do you have a translator with you or? Yeah, well, I usually, I usually borrow the, the military. I mean, there's loads of translators right. around. Or you just, I mean, it's, you never get accurate translations anyway, so I just film everything, and then when I get back, I get it accurately translated, and that's when you find out what's really being said, and it's normally completely different and far worse and than, far than worse what you than... thought was being said. Wow, so you, you know, you're kind of directing out of in intuition sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And I can, you know, I know, I know some words, so I can just about, just about understand roughly what's going on. Right. Uh, what's the book about? You have a new book. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, like we were talking about before, I've, I've, I've been out on major operations for the last six or seven years in Afghanistan, and what I saw with my own eyes and filmed with my own camera was so different to what we were being told was happening in Afghanistan. I just, I just thought I have to get this all down on paper in one place. And, you know, I've heard authors in the past say, I had to write this book, you know, like I had to write this novel, and I thought that was just pretentious nonsense, but, but I just thought I have to get all this down in one place so that someone somewhere can, 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 can see a portrait of what the war actually looks like and, and what it's doing to Afghans as well, because that seems to get lost completely as well. So it's not being covered um, properly in Western media. Is there anyone in the media that's actually doing a disservice um, covering Afghan in a way that you feel is like completely irresponsible because they're not going deep enough or they're deliberately omitting. Um, I think a lot of people are just visiting the, the big forward operating bases and they're filming training and they're getting statements from generals saying we're making progress and things are going well. And, and you know, a lot of reporters who I, I used to sort of follow and respect have said, oh, you, you notice that security feels much better in Helmand. Thinking, just go 500 meters out of that base and you know, just, just stay one night and listen. To, to what goes on outside the base, and you'll know that isn't true. Um, 
but there are, there are some who are doing a, a fantastic job. I mean, Matt Aikens and Luke Mogelson are the two that have really stood out. And there's, there's an organization called the Afghan Analyst Network mm-hmm. who do an amazing job, really in-depth studies of what's going on with people in country who speak the language, but, you know, n- no one outside the, the, the really, you know, committed um, Afghan followers is, is, is really reading their stuff as far as I can see. And what about just one last thing, maybe? Um, are there any public figures, Afghan public figures, that um, you think have some, you know, hold some hope for the future? Are there any kind of leaders outside of the disgraced politicians that are in there now that, you know, have at least, you know, gained some kind of respect or mythology amongst um, the there are, couple, there are a couple of people who ran for the, in the last elections, Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah, who seem like they would have been great for the country. One was a doctor, no. Yeah, yeah. Abdullah. Uh, worked, worked for, uh, I don't, I, well, one worked for the World Bank. Right. Um, right. A very yeah. highly qualified academic. Um, and I think they would have been great for the country, but, but they got tiny percentages from the, you know, the, no, there's no, they're not really that well known out, outside of the, the major cities. And, and this, you know, the, the elections 2014 could be the thing that, that makes everything fall apart. Um, so you're planning to go back maybe in 2014? Yeah, or yeah. later this year. Yeah, yeah. No, I want to go back several times. If we times. send you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone will send me. Okay. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to go back. The elections could really be the turning point. I mean, if, if, if there's massive fraud, which there has been in the past, or if a non-Pashtun wins or doesn't win but is given the result, then, then that could be the tipping point. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Nice talking to you. See you soon.